agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Today, in part four of our Election 2020 series, we'll be discussing President Trump and Joe Biden on foreign policy. But before we get started with that, I want to let everyone know that next week's episode will be released the afternoon of Thursday, October 1st, as opposed to our usual Wednesday morning release time. And the reason for this is that on next week's episode, we'll be discussing the first presidential debate, which will be held the evening of Tuesday, September 29th. And we can't release that discussion on Wednesday because the class that makes this series possible meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So our first opportunity to talk about the debate will be on Thursday morning, after which I'll put together and release the episode as quickly as I possibly can. Now, on the foreign policy, this covers a lot of ground, and we're going to try to get to as much of it as we can today, but it's possible that there are some fairly important foreign policy issues we just won't have the time to get to. Now, there's one issue, in fact, that I know we won't be talking about today, and that's immigration. And that's not because it's not extremely important, but because it's so important that we're going to devote an entire episode to it later on in this series. All right, with that out of the way, we will just get going. So to start off, President Trump has made it very clear that he believes in an America first foreign policy. So what does that mean exactly? And is it a major departure from the sort of approach that we've seen from presidents in the recent past? Uh, Faith, why don't we start off with you today? Um, so Donald Trump's America First approach is more of what has been seen as a departure from what has been commonly seen of the U.S. from World War II. Um, it's geared more towards U.S. isolationism, degrading of traditional alliances, and withdrawing from international treaties and institutions. So it definitely seems like it's different from what we've seen in the past. Is that a, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What, what do you think? Shouldn't all American presidents put America first in their foreign policy? Well, I do agree that every leader in every country is going to put their policy first. But I think the problem that's going to come from is when it comes to looking at America's role in certain things and what happens when America will withdraw from certain organizations. Um, my biggest thing of the degrading of traditional alliances and pulling out of these certain things is if you pull out of organizations like I know Trump. <coughs> talked about pulling out of the WHO is it leaves room for a power vacuum for countries like China to come kind of fill and kind of push their agenda or doctrines more towards that hole that the U.S. would kind of leave. Okay, so the, the idea would be that if we're not there to push back, that gives China greater opportunity to build their reputation and power on the world stage. Now, in contrast to this, at least a little bit, uh, Alan you actually wrote that you felt that President Trump's foreign policy approach isn't maybe that stark of a departure as some people at least have made it out to be. And and I was wondering why you thought that. Yeah, so I feel like this approach to United States foreign policy was a long time coming, and it really was just the conclusion of this long-term trajectory since the end of the Cold War. We've really struggled on the international stage to find our new place after the Soviet Union collapsed. 
And I think we've seen repeated failures as a result of that. And even in the last two presidential administrations, there's been this sort of tepid acknowledgement that international coalitions aren't necessarily to our benefit. During the Bush administration, he was somewhat dismissive towards our NATO allies when we went into Afghanistan. He was like, yeah, you can join us, but don't get in our way. When we invaded Iraq, he decided, hey, we'll form a coalition of the willing as opposed to doing this through an international organization because the international organizations aren't helping us here. And during the Obama administration, for the invasion of Libya, Obama wanted our European partners to take the lead in this NATO effort because he felt that they weren't carrying their weight and the United States needed to step back so that Europe could take a bigger role in NATO. So I think Donald Trump's foreign policy isn't really a departure of America's foreign policy. It's the conclusion of us realizing that our place on the world stage needs to be reevaluated. Okay. Olivia, in, in your paper, you wrote that you felt President Trump's approach to foreign policy was, the word you used was cynical. And I was hoping you could maybe explain a little bit what you, what you meant by that. Yeah, he just, his like isolant or isolationist strategy um, has been kind of based on him saying that even like our allies are taking advantage of the United States or that like they should be paying the United States more for like us having um, troops stationed there or for like our resources. Um, and so I just, I guess I just kind of meant that like, rather than wanting to strengthen ties with our allies and kind of create like a united front, like um, Biden has wanted in terms of foreign policy, he's kind of wanted to like retract um, and been had like a really negative attitude, even toward allies um, as if kind of like the whole world is like, out to take advantage of or against the United States. Okay. Doc? Uh, when you think about it, uh, the United States has probably been the most generous contributor to the world as a whole than any other nation there is. I mean, when you go back to the Marshall Plan after World War II, to any natural disaster that has happened, uh, or unnatural disaster, it seems like the U.S. is always stepping up with uh, all the resources that can possibly be mustered. Uh, and we pay uh, more, much more than our fair share for all the institutions like the United Nations, the WHO, uh, World Trade Organization. Uh, I mean, it's like we're the one with the deep pockets and everybody else just depends on us to make sure they're protected. And uh, nobody else seems to be able to step up to that, that responsibility. And perhaps the argument might be that that made more sense in the immediate aftermath of World War II or even the decades after. But now we have strong, vibrant economies like, for instance, in Germany and other European countries. And President Trump for a long time has said that they should pay more in dues to, to NATO and to support NATO. And in fact, we're seeing more of that. So aside from Doc, who clearly is in favor of that, well, what, what, do, what do other folks think? I mean, isn't it a good thing that our European allies are picking up more of the burden? And in that sense, can we say that that is a step in the right direction for, for foreign policy under President Trump or not so much? Alan. 
I do think it's a good thing that they're sort of picking up their participation on the world stage and sort of paying their fair share, so to speak, when it comes to NATO, because a lot of these countries haven't been meeting their like set standard for military spending for GDP. And it's not like they, in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, or I'm sorry, World War II, they were decimated. And it made sense for us to enact these massive um, economic programs like the Marshall Plan to get them back on their footing. But they're world powers now. France, Germany, the United Kingdom, they're wealthy countries. They can afford to defend themselves. We've, seen, we've suffered through an economic recession. We're really getting hit by COVID. It's just at a certain point, how much longer can we prop up the entire world? You know. Okay. One other thing I wanted to ask all of you about is the response to, well, an awful lot of former Republican national security officials who seem to have great hesitation about President Trump. And this is sort of an unprecedented thing to see so many people in the national security community publicly come out and say, we feel that this person's foreign policy is dangerous to the country as a whole. Now, do you think that that should be that that's a serious concern or is it maybe just the case that these people are more you could call them denizens of the swamp, I guess, who don't like having their and the sort of traditional establishment approach to foreign policy challenged or disrupted? What do you think, Olivia? I think they're right in um, worrying about Trump's approach to foreign policy, not just because he has um, not broken ties with allies, but pulled out of so many global organizations, um, which has kind of um, like isolated the United States and weakened um, those ties with our allies. Um, but on top of that, the leaders that he seems to be kind of cozying up to and developing um, friendly relations with are people like Vladimir Putin and um, Kim Jong-un. So I know that um, a lot of those security advisors we're mentioning um, that as one of the reasons that they're concerned that um, Trump is kind of, um, I guess, developing relations and strengthening relations with the wrong people and with dangerous people on a global scale. Doc. Uh, that's, uh, I have an analogy. I mean, I've been around for a while and I've worked in various, various, many jobs. And you move from one position to another. And as you said, these national security advisors are uh, upset because he is not following their their lead at their time. Well, you when you change a job or the administration you work for changes, you can't look over your shoulder and say, "Oh, I was doing that, and I was doing that right," and you can't change that because the way I was doing it was the right way. I mean, you have to let go and say, okay, the new guy's in charge now. Let's, you know, let's, let's not look at what I did. It's his, it's his job now. Okay. And let's turn to, Joe Biden, uh, what do you see? Uh, what do you see as the differences between uh, Donald Trump's foreign policy and what we might expect in uh, a potential Biden administration? How how do they differ? 
in just in general approach, we're going to get to specific instances in a minute here, but just generally speaking, how is Joe, what Joe Biden is proposing different in your view? Faith, go ahead. Um, Biden's approach to foreign policy more looks to kind of re-strengthen the alliances that um, he feels were kind of tarnished by Trump, um, such as kind of re support with NATO, um, although I do actually agree with Alan and Doc that I think that Trump was right in asking the NATO members to um, support more money. But I do think that the um, idea of kind of forming more alliances in order to strengthen like everyone's ties on the international front will be a good thing. Okay, uh, Olivia. Yeah, Biden's um, approach is definitely more emphasizing diplomacy, um, like Faith said, and also it's a more of a, an idealist, realist, and humanitarian approach. So um, he's more focused on like the well-being of um, the the world of all countries versus like just prioritizing the well-being of the United States at the expense of other countries. Not saying that he's not, you know ensuring the well-being of the United States first, but um, his approach is more so like the United States as, you know, part of the world and how the United, you know, like, for example, with climate change, um, he's much more concerned about climate change because that doesn't just affect the United States, um, it affects all countries. Um, and he's more concerned about human rights and how leaders that he's developing relationships with um, treat their own people and their own citizens. Whereas, you know, like I said before, Trump's been kind of developing relationships with um, people who are brutal to their citizens. So um, I think that's a major uh, place that they differ. Okay. Uh, Noah. I mean, I think one major thing is like, he's trying to, I think, get us back to like a little bit of normalcy with some of our foreign policy. But I mean, like, again, some of the things Trump has done has not been terrible, but they also haven't all been great either. I feel like what he's wanting to do with Biden's plan, I feel like some of the efforts that Trump has been trying to do, he's been trying to do this stamp all by himself. So it's like, we can do this, we can do this. But I feel like if we take a more global approach with getting other countries behind certain stances, it's going to have more of an impact than what Trump is doing by just saying the United States can pressure them. I think it's like, if you have more than one pressuring, you're going to start actually causing pressure. Okay. Let's move on from kind of general uh, foreign policy to some specific instances and areas of concern, starting with China of course, is a non-democratic country and also the world's second largest economy. And it's widely acknowledged to be the main economic and strategic rival to the United States. What do you see as the main actions President Trump has taken regarding our relations to China? And, and would you say that under President Trump, China policy is headed in what you would call the right direction? Alan? I think the main, the most notable action under President Trump has been the trade war. And I think that's called attention to basically the way China manipulates its economic situation to its advantage. It's really brought to our attention to the forefront how much China is abusing its, um, its economic system. So I do think, I think, it, I think it did set things in the right direction because it's finally forcing us to confront China on all these issues that for a very long time we more or less look the other way on because it was to our economic advantage to work with China. Okay. Uh, let's see. Faith. Um, I actually really agree with Alan on that point. Another um, thing that I looked at was Trump's closing of the Houston consulate um, on July 24th, 2020, um, kind of pressuring China to take more responsibility for stealing U.S. intellectual property and espionage. 
Um, I think this closing was a really rare occasion, but I also think kind of as Alan said, it's forcing China to take more responsibility. Um, and what they've been doing in years past, it's kind of been had a blind eye turned to. All right, Doc. I think there's one thing uh, that Trump just did that I uh, I really like, and he has taken a hard line and re- just barred a whole lot of companies' uh, products from coming into the country because they're made by slave labor. Uh, I think uh, he singled out about five companies. Uh, and he is calling China out on a humanitarian level for how uh, they're treating their people. I think uh, the fact that he is right now uh, selling arms to Taiwan and he's backing up all the countries that have uh, they've been having trouble with China based on their trying to take over the whole South China Sea. I mean, like the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, all those small countries where China has come in and said, you know, we own, basically own you. So Trump is uh, backing all those small companies, countries uh, against China, which I think is an excellent idea. Okay, well, this this is an issue where it seems like there there's a fair amount of agreement across the board. What about Joe Biden? I mean, how does he plan to deal with or engage with China? Olivia. Um, yeah, so you kind of already said they are very similar um, on a lot of areas. And I wanted to comment on um, what Doc said about slave labor. Um, even when it's not slave labor, um, and Biden has addressed this, and um, for all I know, Trump might have too, um, but even labor that's paid for in China oftentimes is paid for um, by just unlivable, um, unethical amounts, like literally 10 cents an hour, um, which is how we get goods so um, inexpensively from China and why a lot of manufacturing is in China, um, but it's still like inhumane and they're... Um, economic practices are still unethical and um, and wrong. And I know Biden has addressed this and I just found out, I guess, Trump has too. But um, in terms of like the trade war and everything, Biden is likely to um, kind of continue where uh, Trump left off um, if he's elected president. Um, the place that they'll likely differ is that Biden uh, supports the U.S. and the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the World Trade Organization, um, which Trump does not. Um, and he's out of. So um, that's a major difference. Again, um, emphasizing diplomacy under Biden. Um, and Biden also is likely to take a less, um, what's the word, like a less uh, impulsive approach with China and um, want to negotiate more, but still be kind of harsh on China. Both opponents are kind of criticizing each other and um, competing over who's going to be harder on China. So I think they both have a pretty similar approach. And it's really about who's going to be tougher on China while still um, getting commitments from them and getting things done. So it seems like both candidates are sort of agree in a general uh, a general direction, though Joe Biden is more interested in working through multilateral agreements and organizations, whereas President Trump is a little more focused on perhaps dealing with China in a bilateral type of way. Noah. 
kind of going off what Olivia said. I think like one actual positive thing that Biden's going to do is potentially re-enter that TPP, the Trans-Pacific, I forget what the last initial stands for. And I think it's just really important that we actually do enter that because what Biden's current plan is that we're going to enter it, but we're going to talk to other countries besides China. We're going to like talk to Australia. We're going to talk to Singapore. So it's like, if we actually want to start pressuring China to do the right thing, I think we need to do it with hitting other treaties with other countries with this. Okay. Alan. Oh, I'm sorry, no, but I disagree with you on that. Um, For the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the reason there was such hostility to it on the left and partially on the right was because um, many were worried that entering into an economic agreement with countries like Vietnam would encourage us to deregulate our environmental and labor standards because if we didn't do that, jobs would once again be moving overseas to countries that have lower environmental and labor standards. And I don't think we need to have an economic agreement with these countries to box China in. They're already very hostile to China. Vietnam is very uncertain about China. That's the reason our relationship has improved with them, honestly. The Philippines are scared. Every country in the South China Sea is intimidated. And even global North countries like Canada and New Zealand, they're coming around to realizing how aggressive and dangerous China is in Canada when they imprisoned that um, Chinese executive for, I don't remember, she did something illegal. Um, the Chinese, they arrested Canadian citizens in China in retaliation. And now the Canadian government is a lot more skeptical of China. I think, I think we can work with our international partners without necessarily hurting ourselves. Let's move on from China to Russia. Now, of course, Russia is, well, ostensibly a democracy, but not really in any meaningful sense, I'll say. Um, but uh, Russia is certainly a second key rival to the United States on the world stage. So when it comes to Russia, what do you see as successes or failures of policy in the Trump administration? Alan? Um, I guess one success I saw was, and it's a hot take, but um, Trump moving some of our troops from Germany to Poland, which is closer to Russia's border. I think it's important for us to have troops closer to Russia's border because that sends a bigger message. And Poland's more intimidated by Russia than Germany is, and it's more economically susceptible to Russia than Germany is. Not to say Germany isn't economically susceptible, they are. Um, One issue I had, or one thing I thought might be a failure, is if Trump actually, it's, I don't know that it's necessarily confirmed. It's the reason the whole impeachment thing occurred was Trump supposedly withholding aid, military aid to Ukraine until he got dirt on Biden. I don't think our, if that's true, I don't think that's how we should be conducting international relations, especially in such a risky situation like that with a country that's already sort of being co-opted by Russia. Yeah, I think it's hard to talk about Russia without talking about the election, certainly, because the two things are so very intertwined. Olivia. Yeah, and also Trump's, um, I guess, undermining of U.S. intelligence and continuously saying he believes Putin that um, Moscow did not interfere in the election um, when we have concrete evidence that they did. Um, And Trump has, I guess, um, under pressure, he's reluctantly um, increased sanctions on Moscow. Um, in retaliation for the alleged interference, but um, you know, just because he's um, he's in- increasing sanctions um, doesn't mean he's really holding them accountable um, vocally because he continuously says he doesn't believe that they did it. 
Um, and he's taking Putin's word on that, um, which is someone that, you know, the United States has never and probably shouldn't have, you know, this warm relationship with. So um, I would say that's another failure. And that's a major place where um, Trump and Biden disagree, um, because Biden 100 percent wants um, Russia to be held accountable, especially Moscow to be held accountable for election interference. And um, uh, both candidates have um, vowed Trump has uh, increased, I guess, intelligence, defense um, and uh, technology or technology defense against Russia um, to uh, I guess, prevent a future um, hacking for this election. And, you know, Biden supports that, too. But um, I think it's just more the attitude toward it. Trump. Trump has kind of taken this attitude that like, well, they didn't do it, but I'm under pressure. So I'm going to do this. Whereas Biden um, more so believes that they did it and advocates that they did it. So more generally, uh, other folks, do you think that Donald Trump has taken a strong enough stance against Russia or has he done too little, perhaps out of concerns that, uh, again, this ties to uh, questions of legitimacy of his election, a, a, a topic he seems you know, uh, very sensitive about. And of course, any president would probably be sensitive to questions of the legitimacy of his election. What do you think? Has, has, has that issue particularly made President Trump less uh, likely or more reluctant to take a hard line against uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia? Doc. Well, I I think Trump is kind of ambivalent toward Russia. It's not a huge economic power. Uh, it's not even a huge military power anymore. Uh, most of their their threat comes in the area of uh, cyber crime, if you want to call it that. Um, uh, you take, you know, just a person like me who thinks they, you know, everybody, you know, has got their hands up and in the air going, oh, they interfered with the election. I don't think they interfered that much. That made, if they did, it didn't make that big a difference. Uh, nobody asked them, hey, interfere so people will vote for Trump. They just interfered. Uh, I don't know if they were just hacking for the fun of it or what, but no, I just I don't think he he considers them much of much of a threat at all. Uh, I think when you were talking about somebody mentioned the Ukraine before, you have to go back to when Biden uh, actually on live TV said that he withheld money from the Ukraine uh, until they they uh, stopped an investigation into something he was doing. Uh, I, I, I find that uh, disturbing. Okay. Well, and that's, well, that's a whole other topic. And I'm sure, well, I am betting that that is a topic that is probably going to come up during one of the debates and we'll kind of cover it there so as not to get sidetracked. But just to give folks, uh, listeners, a little bit of context for a few of the things that, that Doc mentioned about the size of Russia. Uh, Russia's economy is the 11th largest in the world. It's kind of right between Canada and South Korea and uh, varies a bit depending how you measure it. In terms of their military 
They're all right around the fifth or sixth largest in the world, again, depending on how you measure it. And of course, they are still a, a pretty significant nuclear power. Let's go on to the Middle East. This is clearly another key strategic concern of the United States. So what has President Trump done in this region for better or for worse? Doc. Well, in the Middle East, I mean, he just um, negotiated those uh, treaties between the United Arab Emirates and Israel and Bahrain and Israel. Uh, and he alludes to having more of those on the table. Uh, he's been nominated for two uh, Nobel Peace Prizes, which uh, probably surprised a, uh, quite a few people. But he has done things that other administrations haven't done, like he moved the uh, United States Embassy uh, from uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which about every one of his predecessors said they were going to do, but didn't do it. He has done things like that, that that his predecessors have promised to do, but didn't do. So I think he is making a lot of progress in the Middle East, probably will make more. I'd love to see him get Saudi Arabia into the, uh, into the mix. But as I said, he is, uh, he, he has, he has done more than I think Jimmy Carter was the last one to uh, to get a peace treaty. One of the Arab nations in Israel, right? Egypt and Egypt and Jordan. That was a that was a very big, big deal. Uh, yeah. So that that's a pretty long list of accomplishments. One one thing I wanted to mention, just kind of as an aside, about nominations for the Nobel Prize. It turns out actually that that it. That's it's not necessarily that difficult to get nominated. It is more difficult to get the prize. I was kind of curious about that, and I looked up who can nominate someone. It turns out that I actually could nominate someone for the uh, Nobel Prize because, according to the the committee, if you are a professor of social sciences, you can nominate somebody. So maybe I should get going on that. But let's put that aside and talk about all of those, at least some of those accomplishments that Doc has. Mentioned. I mean, is that can can we look at the Middle East now and say that we're in a much better position than we were when Barack Obama left office because of Donald Trump? What do you think, Alan? I think you could possibly make that argument, and I think this is why it's so hard for a lot of people to talk about the Middle East is because there's just so much complexity in it. I mean, ISIS is gone, Baghdadi and Soleimani are, and they passed away. We've reached a agreement with the Taliban to hopefully withdraw troops from Afghanistan in exchange for the end of terror attacks. I mean, these are successes, and we are we strengthened our regional partnerships with countries like Saudi Arabia and Israel. I do think that Obama could receive credit for some of this, starting it at least. I also think that a lot of this has been accomplished. Um, and as a result, we've kind of ignored humanitarian issues, which maybe, honestly, that's what we have to do in the Middle East. I personally would hope we don't have to do that. But 
it's just, it's just such a tricky region to decipher, which is probably why it's so difficult to say if like I think we are in a better place, but at what cost maybe. Okay. Olivia. Um yeah, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I guess my um criticism of Trump with the Middle East has again been um his impulsiveness and kind of undermining Congress and the um War Powers Act or War Powers Resolution. Um, because he has, he's launched, um, I think he has like the record of airstrikes or something against, um, the Middle East, uh, or not against the Middle East, but against terrorist organizations in the Middle East. Um, and he's done so without the approval of Congress. So that was, um, a major criticism on Biden's part too. Um, and also Biden supports a two state, um, a two state solution in, uh, regarding Israel and Palestine. Um, on the condition that Palestine reduces violence. Um, and Trump has kind of uh, pledged all of his allegiance to Israel, where um, Biden supports Israel as well. But um, Biden kind of is concerned that granting Israel um, the majority of the West Bank, as Trump's peace plan um, vows to do, um, and also, you know, having moved the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which Biden supports. He says he won't move it back. But um, Biden's concern is just that that's actually going to incite more violence um, and more uh, instability um, in the Middle East versus um, the peace that it's it intended to um, result in. So um, I guess I'm kind of curious to see if that will pan out um, and, you know, if that will actually result in, in more violence. Yeah, I, Donald Trump pretty clearly has been uh, a strong supporter of, of Israel as all American presidents have at least said they are. In fact, Joe Biden calls himself a Zionist, or at least has in the past. But where President Trump has perhaps differed in the region is he has gone further towards supporting Saudi Arabia against Iran. And some people have argued that by doing things like pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement and lending support to Saudi Arabia, including uh, selling arms, helping Saudi Arabia in its uh, war and uh, at least its role in the civil war in Yemen against congressional wishes, vetoing legislation to try to stop U.S. arms sales, that he's tilted the balance too much and he's gone too much all in on Saudi Arabia and alienated Iran too much. It's going to end up creating greater problems down the line. What do you think about that? Is was the approach under the Obama administration, which was much more of a, I guess you could say, trying to balance these interests better than Donald Trump's approach of sort of perhaps being more stark about friends and enemies in the region? Doc? The old saying, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. Uh, I think Iran, I think what his strategy is, is to get everybody in the Middle East, basically circling the wagons around Iran and isolate Iran just as absolutely much as he can. Um, I mean, he's got the their economy uh, pretty rocky right now, um, but uh, the more he more pressure he can put on Iran. And this is this sort of goes against something I'm going to say later about Korea, but he is not talking with anybody in Iran that we know of. I mean, he may have some back channels, but there's no 
no diplomatic conversation at all to try to to get Iran into some kind of negotiation. So he is just trying to pressure them to death by having their the the whole Middle East neighborhood push against them. Okay. Uh, you know, on that issue of, of Iran and the nuclear deal, they, in your paper, you actually wrote something about how you felt that the Iran deal was a good thing in part because of transparency. And I was, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So part of the reason why I didn't think the deal in itself was a super great deal, but what a lot of supporters of the deal did like was it did offer us an unprecedented degree of transparency transparency into um, like nuclear fuel, fuel development of what was been going on in Iran. And I think because of just the traditional instability in the Middle East, having that kind of unpre- unprecedented oversight was something that was actually really beneficial for the U.S. Okay. Noah? I actually also agree with Faith on that topic, which is um, I feel that Iran nuclear deal obviously was not perfect. No deal is perfect. But I feel like it was a step in that right direction to actually getting them to not potentially get nuclear weapons and stuff like that. So I feel like us pulling us out, it was kind of like that big threat that you have because it's like there's other nations that are involved in it. But it's like you need a bigger you kind of have like with us having that big threat against them, like you need to do this, you need to do this. Now it's us we're pulling out. And so it's like, again, they can start up the things. I think they already have started back up and doing nuclear stuff. So it's like I think it was a step in the right direction. But now it's like we've kind of went backwards. What about under what about Joe Biden on this? How do you see policy in the Middle East changing in a Biden administration? And do you think that change, those changes would be for the better or for the worse? Olivia. Um, so Biden's been really critical over a few things that Trump has done. Um, number one, and I guess the, the biggest concern is, as I said before, his impulsiveness and his failure to um, get approval from Congress before launching these airstrikes. Um, Biden has stated that he would uh, work in a much less unilateral way um, and and get approval from um, advisors, security advisors and Congress before um, before launching airstrikes. But um, also he's been critical about um, Trump pulling troops out of Syria um, and leaving the Kurds to basically be slaughtered and tormented um, by Turkey um, or Turkish militia. Um, and he's also, and, and uh, as we'll probably get to later with the military, Biden is for bringing troops home, but not at such an aggressive rate um, as Trump has. Um, and then also uh, Biden's been very critical of Trump's closeness with Saudi Arabia, um, more than anything because of Biden's humanitarian approach um, and that the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, I think is how you say it, um, the U.S.-based journalist that was murdered in Saudi Arabia, um, Trump has failed to hold Salman accountable for that, um, probably because of his close ties with Saudi Arabia. Um, and the journalist had actually written that um, that the regime in Saudi Arabia was um, brutal and authoritarian, um, and then he was murdered. So um, I think there's a major problem with ethics there that Biden is acknowledging, and um, and Biden kind of demands that Saudi Arabia be held accountable for that, whereas Trump hasn't really um, hasn't really pushed for that or even acknowledged it. He's actually said that he believes Salman that he didn't have anything to do with it. So um, there's a major difference there. You know that that brings. 
brings me back to a point that I think, Alan, that you made about uh, human rights issues and do they have to take a backseat? And I think you said you hope not, but 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 who knows? And this is a particularly vexing issue in the Middle East where, you know, there really are a lot of countries that don't seem to have uh, the sort of concern for human rights that we would we would like to see. And what about the differences between Donald Trump and Joe Biden? And it seems like Joe Biden, in, in a number of ways, wants to stress human rights a little bit more. And Donald Trump is more about strategic interests far more than human rights. Which of these approaches do you think is more realistic in, in the world we live in today? Doc? Well, I think if you can get your strategic interests taken care of, then you can go after the humanitarian issues. Um, I think you have to have some skin in the game. Uh, you have to have some leverage that you can use uh, against the humanitarian abuses uh, like the trade war with China and the business with China that we're trying to use pressure to to help in the humanitarian area. I mean, um, you talk about humanitarian issues, just look at Iran. I mean, they just executed that that wrestler. They, they had a bunch of kids that they cut their fingers off for stealing. I mean, those are humanitarian issues. Uh, okay. But uh, I think you need. I think you need the the, the strategic clout before you can go after the humanitarian issue. All right, Olivia. Yeah, I think this is the major difference between Trump's America First um, policy, which literally means we're going to worry about worry about um, what benefits America first, and then worry about um, the interests of other countries and their citizens second, um, versus Biden's um, more humanitarian and, and globalist approach. Um, I I kind of agree that it's you know the United States physically can't um, I guess address you uh, human rights violations in every country um, and it's not really our responsibility to do so. However, um, as Biden has said, when Trump develops these close relationships with um, leaders like uh, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, um, who are known for being brutal to their citizens, um, I think, you know, as Biden has said, it legitimizes them. It legitimizes dictators. It legitimizes corruption and um, inhumane tactics. And when we do business um, with countries like that, like uh, as Doc was saying, when we, when we do business with China even, um, it's also supporting uh, a, a an unethical and inhumane um, economy or economic system that they have there. So I think that's kind of um, the problem that, that Biden is addressing is that, you know, when we support these countries, um, we are also supporting the tactics that they use that um, we don't view as okay or ethical in the United States. So why do we want to um, support them and prop them up and bolster these leaders um, of other countries who use those, um, those unethical and inhumane tactics? Okay. Let's move on to North Korea. It's been sort of alluded to once or twice here before. North Korea, obviously an authoritarian country and uh, I think an implacable enemy of the United States. And also North Korea seems bent on acquiring nuclear weapons. So 
How would you evaluate President Trump's response to the threat posed by North Korea? Faith. Um, one of the ways that I see kind of Donald Trump's um, approach in North Korea as a failure is when Trump actually agreed to meet with um, Kim Jong-un directly. Um, and the reason why I say this is a failure is because traditionally it's not seen with the United States to meet with the head of government of Korea, like with the two leaders directly, looking to kind of delegitimize the communist government of North Korea. And the other reason why I think um, failure is because it actually reversed past precedent that the president allowed the meeting before seeing any tangible signs of denuclearization by North Korea. All right. Uh, Doc. I think uh, Trump meeting with uh, him, no Western leader had ever done that before. It's one of those things, well, let's give this a shot and see what happens. Um, I mean, he, even though the was unsuccessful, communicating with somebody like that is better than not communicating. Uh, it's it's almost like Iran. I wish there was a way they would communicate with Iran, but I mean, talking to that guy uh, is at at least he tried. Uh, he also kind of brought to light what trying to be diplomatic here. (laughs) What a nutcase that guy is. Um, But as I said, you know, communicating is better than not communicating. Okay. Um, Noah? I mean, to me, it's kind of like a positive, but also like a negative at the same time. It's like, yes, they did open talks and they started to at least like, kind of like we are like civilized, we are like socializing with them it's like we're trying to at least get them to do things but they really haven't done anything so it's like i think how when they said one of the papers it's basically just been a giant photo op for donald trump because it's like look i've met with the leader of north korea so it's like yes they've done these things but it's like what have they truly done to help improve not only the lives of north koreans but also people in the united states i mean like they literally like after trump did not agree to do one thing for north korea he literally North Korea, again, started to do missile testing. So it's like, we have these talks, but it's like they aren't doing anything. All right, Alan. I sort of agree with Noah, and I think that kind of goes into the North Korean strategy, which I think is something Trump didn't really consider, and it's something we've sort of caught on to by now. And that's that they're going to, they want nuclear weapons. And we've tried repeatedly in the past to get them to abandon that ambition. And they haven't. What they do is they ratchet up their nuclear program. They create regional tension. They get the U.S. and South Korea involved in negotiations to relieve some economic and political pressure on them so they're in a better position. And then they just go straight back to redeveloping their nuclear program, either through secretive means or through alternative measures. They did it during the Bill Clinton administration in the 90s. They did it during the George W. Bush administration. This is North Korea's strategy. And for us to fall for it again a third time, it just, it seems laughable at this point. We need to get real concessions from them if we're going to have a real negotiation here. All right. Uh, Olivia. 
Right. I agree with what Alan was saying. And um, that has been, I, I keep going back to Biden, but I just, I tend to prefer his approach on a lot of this, but um, uh, that has been one of uh, Biden's critiques of Trump is that, um, you know, he met with Kim Jong-un three times, which was unprecedented and headline grabbing, um, but we didn't really get anything out of it. Um, Trump never really demanded or uh, obtained any commitment from uh, North Korea to Geneva to denuclearize. Um, there's been zero evidence of destruction of missiles. Um, and uh, as Noah was saying, after Trump denied, and on the third meeting, um, Trump denied uh, Kim Jong-un's request for um, a reduction of sanctions against North Korea. Um, and when Trump rejected that request, um, you know, tensions kind of rose again, um, as I think most of us would have expected, um, that it wasn't going to stay peaceful for long. Um, and, and they began testing uh, nuclear weapons again. So, um, I, yeah, I think uh, while Trump has um, made history being the first president to actually meet with Kim Jong-un, um, as I said before, number one, that's problematic because uh, the reason that that's not been the precedent for United States president is that um, it, it's legitimizing a dictator and it's legitimizing their regime. Um, but also it, it's kind of all been for nothing. It hasn't really gotten us anywhere. There, you know, it seems to me that there are, well, at least this would be a conservative argument or a pro-Trump argument, but saying that there have been three areas where the U.S. seems to have been somewhat stalemated. Uh, China, it's in increasing power and disrespect for intellectual property and various other problems. And North Korea, which has been, you know, like uh, uh, Charlie Brown, Lucy in the football, just uh, I think, Alan, you made the you explained how that's been working time and time again and in the Middle East, where every president since, well, you know, for a long time now has tried to do something and everything's been stalled. So does Donald Trump get some credit for his kind of his doc putting put it, you know, just saying, well, you know, let's just try something different and see if it works. It should he should we give him some credit for trying to break these stalemates, even if his efforts weren't, you know, aren't going to be ultimately successful? What do you think, Olivia? I would say yes, um, in part. Um, I think, you know, when the ultimate goal is peace with North Korea and uh, minimizing the threat that North Korea poses, uh, especially with nuclear weapons, um, you know, I don't blame Trump for wanting to try something more personal and, you know, maybe um, meet face to face and maybe that would change things um, and be more diplomatic toward North Korea. Um, however, I think the problem that most people have, both Republicans and Democrats alike, is how um, close of like a friendship and how warm of a relationship he developed with Kim Jong-un. Um, and he, you know, was always like, I think he, his quote was that they fell in love um, and that he really, he said on live TV that he liked how Kim Jong-un's face was, uh, his, his citizens were so loyal to him. Um, and I think that's where it becomes scary. And that's where, uh, like Biden's saying, um, it's kind of bolstering a dictator. And uh, I think that's the problem. Like having, you know, a, a diplomatic relationship with, or, or even just, you know, a cordial relationship with Kim Jong-un, um, you know, in negotiations for the purpose of, you know, trying to get them to denuclearize, fine, try something new. You know, I don't fault him for that. But the extent that he went to and kind of defending and propping up Kim Jong-un, who we know to be so brutal and corrupt, um, I think that's problematic in a lot of ways. Okay. Doc? No, it's just, just an analogy. I mean, my background is in information technology and so many times people would come and they go, 
what happens if I do that? And the answer is, do it and see what happens. <laughs> uh, you know, that building's not going to burn down. So just just do it. If nothing happens, maybe something good will happen, but nothing bad's going to happen. Okay. Uh, you know, let's move on to talk about the military and military policy in general. Uh, President Trump seems to believe, and I think Olivia and some other folks mentioned, a more aggressive withdrawal of U.S. military forces than past presidents have. He's also uh, made some comments or alleged, sorry, allegedly made some comments about the military that uh, are fairly recently that have some people concerned. So how do you see Donald Trump's relationship, both, I guess, to the military and to the idea of military force, more important from a policy perspective? And how does that differ from how you see Joe Biden approaching the military and military force? Doc. First of all, the report concerning Trump insulting members of the military came from unknown sources right before the election. Now, how much credence can you give that? Then there was the other thing about the Russians putting a bounty of giving the Taliban a bounty. That's another one. Unknown sources. I mean, that is so ridiculous. Um, I mean, it's one thing that you've seen Trump do when members of the military come back to Dover Air Force Base in a flag-draped coffin. You see Trump out there meeting those planes time after time. You don't see Obama out there doing that. I mean, I think the man supports the military 100%. He is. Uh, I think his idea of drawing down the military is probably a good strategic uh, option. Uh, we'll notice somewhere along the line that no wars have started since he's been president. Okay. Uh, just, I think that's, you know, it's important to point out that that the comments uh, that President Trump allegedly made where these are accusations made by, as Doc pointed out, uh, unnamed anonymous sources, though, as for the issue about uh, President uh, Obama not meeting, uh, uh, not meeting fallen troops at Dover Air Force Base, he actually did that. But and we won't get into kind of who met how many troops and what does that that mean? Certainly. Uh, let's see. We have some other comments here. Let's start with uh, Noah. So to me, I think the issue with potentially the name calling of any of these troops is that there's that potential that it did happen. I mean, if he truly does support the military as much as he says he does, this shouldn't even be alleged. This shouldn't even potentially have happened. And I mean, even in 2015, he's even called other, I mean, he even called John McCain a loser. I mean, he explicitly stated in an interview, he does not like people that who have been captured in the military. I mean, to be a prisoner of war, none of us will ever be able to experience that. None of us will ever be able to understand what truly happened to him except for him. And so I do not put it past him to say that. But I, again, I mean, it's just to me is in shock that a president who is supposed to be our commander in chief has these alleged remarks. Okay. Faith. Um, yeah, my thing back, um, kind of going up 
with the Russian bounty hunters. I think the what the problem with a lot of people had with that is that Trump didn't kind of try to get to the bottom of it and then also possibly call Russia out if it were found to be true. I know they said that the reports weren't 100% confirmed, but I think it just kind of added more suspicion to his relationship with Russia. And then also going with what Noah said, the fact that he did call John McCain saying that he wasn't a war hero, he liked people who weren't captured, I think that kind of gives people in the idea of the, in the back of their mind that maybe he isn't entirely pro-military. All right, Olivia. Yeah, and then his recent statements. Okay, so first of all, I I think it is problematic that these uh, claims are unsubstantiated. Do I believe that it's uh, probable that Trump would have said something like this? Absolutely. Um, but I do think, you know, obviously that, that's going to be problematic, especially uh, from the, the perspective of people on the right who support Trump, that they're unsubstantiated claims. However, what is substantiated is, uh, as Noah and Faith have both said, that he called John McCain a loser. <laughs> um, and that, and also that um, he was recently, or no, I guess it was, uh, yeah, it was recently, it was 2017, um, that he uh, called John Kelly's fallen son, or he, he said, I don't get it, what was in it for them. And that has been um, circulating in the news lately as well, um, kind of going along with his alleged statement that uh, war dead are losers and suckers. So um, we have enough um, actually substantiated non-anonymous source um, statements from Trump that support that he, number one, um, does not know how to empathize with people who've served in the military, and number two, doesn't think fondly of those who did not serve and then survive and get to come home. Um, so I, I think the reason that this is so important is that Trump has kind of rallied a, a strong support from military and military families, and um, I want to say it's around 84% of the military um, tends to be conservative. So the fact that Trump's approval from the military has dropped to only about 50%, um, I think that these statements, you know, have contributed to that. And they're also definitely not going to help. And, and they're coming out right before the election. Um, I think that could have a, a substantial um, negative impact on, on Trump's uh, electability. OK. Now, Joe Biden's campaign says that he will, uh, the quote is, end the forever wars in Afghanistan and the Middle East, which have cost us untold blood and treasure. And when I read that, I thought, you could just sort of cut and paste that on a uh, Donald Trump campaign site. So how much difference is there really between the Trump and Biden approach to the military in general? Is there is there much appreciable difference or not so much, would you say? Noah? To me, one major difference is the um, how Trump during his administration banned transgender troops and Biden would unban them. So to me, again, it's like I have personally never served in the military, but if anybody who is willing and wanting to serve in the military should not be banned just because they want to be who they want to be. If you are transgender, you still should have the opportunity if you want to serve in the military. Just because you are trans does not mean you cannot fight. So that is one major thing I see differently is Trump want, is still continuing the ban while Biden is wanting to get rid of it. That is one major difference in the military I see with them. Okay. Olivia. Um, just to note or comment on what Noah was just saying, um, also data proves that the uh, costs associated with um, allowing trans individuals to serve in the military, which uh, Trump kind of uh, relied on, you know, that the costs are too high, the costs are too much to allow people to serve um, because of their medical bills and um, because of their willingness to actually fight. Um, and, and none of those claims have kind of held true. Um, 
the costs associated have been negligible. So, um, you know, I also support Biden um, wanting to overturn that legislation and, and allow um, trans troops to serve. Um, another major issue where, or another major uh, arena where uh, Biden and Trump differ is um, that while Biden supports bringing troops home, um, he does not support, you know, bringing them home without first uh, evaluating the consequences in the countries where troops are stationed. Um, Trump kind of wants to just aggressively bring troops home very quickly um, and at a really high rate, whereas, you know, Biden, of course, wants, you know, to, to bring troops home, but not um, not without first considering, you know, what the major consequences are going to be. Um, tr- uh, Biden is more supportive of maintaining the current amount of troops in Germany um, as defense against Russia. Um, and uh, Biden and Trump have both supported, uh, you know, protecting, um, oh, what is it? Uh, it's troops in Afghanistan protecting from um, the Taliban. Um, but, you know, Biden has criticized Trump pulling troops out of Syria, as I said before. Um, so I think Biden is just kind of more, you know, I want to bring troops home, but maybe not as quickly and maybe at you know a lower rate um, than Trump. All right. Well, we've got to wrap things up at this point. But before we go, just remember, if you want to send us a question or anything you'd like us to comment on, address, clarify, what have you, that's mail at politicsguys.com. Also, remember that next week's episode actually will be again on Thursday, as opposed to dropping on Wednesday like normal. That'll be our debate on first presidential debate analysis. That should be, I think, fairly interesting. And also, if addition, if in addition to this series on the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you would like a third full length politics guys episode every week. You can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter and supporters get ad-free versions and all of our shows and other good stuff as well. Check it out. Patreon.com slash politics guys. And again, uh, a lack of ability, lack of uh, financial ability to pay should never be a barrier. I don't believe it should be. So if you'd like all that content, but you just can't afford to become a supporter, just send me an email, Mike at politics and I will get you set up with full access to everything. And please, if you haven't already, it'd be great if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially to share episodes on social media. And for more great discussions, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. The URL is in the show notes. Also, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis show on Saturday. And again, the next segment in this election 2020 series on Thursday. We hope you'll join us.